Hi, this is Stephen Krein. I am so excited to be here for another episode of Game Changer Jumps podcast with my good friend and my coach, Dan Sullivan. Steve, we had a really, really interesting previous episode. And so this is number two of an episode at looking at startup health as the only global entrepreneurial R&D lab in the world. And I welcome people who think that they have something like this. And I mean, this is going out around the world. So if anybody thinks they have actually something to match this, Steve would like to know about this. I would like to know about this. But I feel confident about making that statement. I made the statement to you that because of the unique areas that you've put together, which don't ordinarily belong together, you have created something that I have a name for it, and you've created a free zone frontier for the next 25 years as a starter to actually bring total collaborative capability to the entire healthcare and medical world, worldwide, every country, every individual on the planet. And the whole point is, it's happening even as we speak. The value of creating this new global network is already happening, and you don't have to get freaked out about it because a quarter from now, it's going to be better than it was last quarter. Absolutely, and so on and so on and so on. Yes. You know, the thing that I love about your Free Zone Frontier concept is that it allows you to rest easy on the notion that there's other times, whether it's the last several decades or the last several centuries, that you can kind of go back and see how it's played out. But only if you go up and look at decades, not if you look at years or months. Yeah. And so many entrepreneurs, because of their particular situation, whether they were trained or how they've been kind of grown up or learned to think, don't think about decades and the kind of freedom that comes from looking at having enough time to do what you need to do to make it happen. And so free zone frontiers are only, I think, possible if you're willing to go out a couple of decades and talk mm -hmm. about a 20 or 25, 30 year vision that you're working on. And so there's not many frontiers if you just think about it this year, but there's lots of frontiers if you think about it in terms of a future that is long and expansive. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that what is entrepreneurial about this is that you put things together which people ordinarily wouldn't think belong together. And in your case, if I can just summarize very quickly what we covered in the last episode, you've taken medicine, which is a separate universe. You've taken healthcare, which is a separate universe. You've taken entrepreneurism. You've taken the entire investment community. You've taken technology. And you've taken coaching. You know, six things that I can think of, and I think maybe we'll discover. And media, media on top of that. Uh, yeah. The other thing is that when you create a free zone frontier, the most entrepreneurial, the most innovative, the most inventive people are very, very attracted to add what they have so that they can also participate in the free zone frontier. So it's an attraction model rather than a, what I would say, a pursuit model. You're not pursuing this. You've actually already created in the eight years that Startup Health has actually been growing and growing very rapidly, even more so each quarter. 
and you already have created the vision as a reality, even though you know in 25 years some of the biggest paydays are going to happen out there. But you're already seeing the paydays just in terms of measurable results that are coming from almost now 300 entrepreneurial companies who are collaborating with each other, where previously these type of companies might have been working alone by themselves, keeping secrets, and then worrying about competition, actually seeing, you know, legal protection as their most important future capability. And what's really interesting about this is that the first thing you did, and I was, you know, very aware of this, that after you yourself was very successful as a startup entrepreneurial company in the late 1990s in using the new internet to actually expand a new free zone frontier in the area of advertising and then going through an IPO process and actually having good timing when you sold it, you actually created a foundation for yourself to sit back and say, how can I be valuable to other people simply on the basis of the experience that I've just had? And that naturally lends you to a coaching model. And you created a coaching model, which I call the startup to payoff coaching model, because you can show them how if they start now and they grow, they have a whole number of options in the future. They can get other investors to come into their company. They can merge with other companies. They can have partners in their company. They can go IPO and go public with their company. So my feeling is that you had a coaching free zone And what I'm going to say about the coaching model that you created is that no one else can understand or copy how and why the coaching process works. Steve, we could have a whole podcast on how your coaching program works. And people say, yeah, but why would anybody want to do that? Bingo. Looking at it from your standpoint, why would Steve, after doing this, why would he want to do this? I mean, not only that, but within the framework of the startup health network, the entire game-changing network that you are, it's actually given to them for free. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I would say that the payoff in my mind, I talked on the last episode about, I used to think the payoff was money, an exit of some sort. Now the payoff is saving people's lives, changing people's lives, the health moonshots, the payoff, right? If we can work together over the next couple decades and you can be a contributor to the ending of cancer, That's the payoff. And in order to get that payoff, there is a number of things needed. You need team, you need capital, you need customers, you need data, you need things that are going to give you the ability to get that goal achieved. And so the interesting thing about even how my thinking has evolved on coaching, we used to have it front and center, Startup Health Academy and come for coaching and we'll help you. And it's funny, but it's the words of like, why do I need it and how do it work? it's almost like disappeared into the fabric of just the way we operate. No, it's the wiring behind the walls now. It's just the wiring behind the walls. And so there's so many different things around that. It's not coaching top down. It's everybody coaching each other. But the vocabulary and the mindset about who's in the community and how coaching works, it's a way of talking to each other. It's not a quote unquote business. It's part of just the way we help. And talk to you today. And you know, it's funny, in the last workshop, Dan, we talked about the difference between coaching and managing. 
and coaching and leading. And I'd love you to just explain that because it really does summarize the notion of it's almost a way of being. It's not a thing that you do. I actually did a podcast with Shannon Waller on this, so I'm fresh off of it. Everybody needs structure and process in order to make personal progress. I don't care what the structure looks like. I don't care what the process looks like. There has to be a predictable way forward that if you follow it, things get better and things get bigger. Okay, so that's number one. And one way of doing that is being managed by other people. And one of the other things is to have coaches who actually ask you what the future looks like and they will help you create your own self-managing structure and process. So the basis is all human beings need structure and process. The question is, are you going to be managed by someone else, or are you going to learn how to manage yourself? And coaches are the crucial individuals who allow you to coach yourself. And the payoff is that all human beings have to manage things, All human beings have to be monitored, and all human beings have to be motivated. The three M's, I call it. So management, monitoring, and motivation. And I'll tell you a little story that showed me the impact of that. Pavarotti, who was one of the greatest tenors for about a half a century in the world, in New York City had a music coach. And he would check in with this person, and his singing coach couldn't sing. He could play the piano. And he'd say, okay, I'll play this, now sing. And Pavarotti did not know when he was off track. And his coach said, oh, no, no, you're sliding off to the side here. You have to do this. And for decades, this little man who played piano was Pavarotti's coach, okay? Because you can't play the game and see yourself playing the game, okay? I mean, you can't be 100% playing trying to spend part of your time watching yourself. You can't be in the jar and know what's on the label, you know? So it's actually that coaching. And my sense is that you provide a coaching structure so that your entrepreneurial companies can gradually become self-managing, self-monitoring, and self-motivating. And then be able to massively collaborate with other entrepreneurial companies who are doing the same thing. It's almost like you're getting them ready for collaboration. You're getting them ready to play a much bigger game than just their own entrepreneurial game. It's the worldwide global entrepreneurial R&D lab. You're making people ready to be really, really great collaborators on a global basis. So that's what I say your coaching program really does. And you can't manage people into that capability. Yeah. You know, it's funny because if I was to, and this is just when I just think back and use a workshop I did in 2012, and I compare it to a workshop yesterday, I would have said 2012, it was 80% me coaching and 20% the entrepreneurs coaching each other in breakouts. I will flip that yesterday to say it was 80% them coaching each other, guided by and having our team and myself at 20%. And rather than looking at that as a fail, I look at that as a wild success (laughs) that we flipped it. And by the way, it's rewarding because it feels like watching a pleasurable, enjoyable show, right? You're, yeah. you're watching your entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs that are working on these moonshots, not only fundamentally understanding it and putting it into practice, but by showing how they're doing it, they're giving the other entrepreneurs the confidence it's all doable. So 
There was a great conversation between two entrepreneurs yesterday about an entrepreneur came in and he'd never taken free days. He was working weekends and he saw weekends as a catch-up time. And for years, I've been talking about the idea of the rejuvenation on weekends. And rather than being like general about free days, for me, it's every weekend for our entrepreneurs, it's vacation. It's off. You're off. And it's critical to have really great Monday through Friday. So one of the entrepreneurs, before we could even mention a word other than healthy habits and how important it is to be able to have that perspective and stand back, he said, I came into Startup Health. I had never taken weekends off. I heard Steve talk for quarters over quarter over quarter about how critical it was. And I finally said, this is going to be the quarter I do one day. And then he goes, by the end of that quarter, I was able to do two days. And he explained the entire idea of the recharge that comes from a weekend off Mm -hmm. and how the people that he now impacted as a result of that, his team and all these people Mm -hmm. were all the other entrepreneurs needed to hear about. So it was almost like just a joy to watch the entrepreneurs coaching each other and sharing their own story and self-managing. Yeah, but you know, it's like training wheels on little kids' bikes. Well, guess what? They can't take corners. They can't stay upright. And until they can do that through their own internal capabilities, they need training wheels. But by the time you get to, you know, a Harley, you have your own Harley, you probably don't need training wheels anymore. And I think that, you know, as you go along, you will provide the management outside to the degree and for the period of time until the individual knows how to self-manage themselves. Yeah, but it's interesting, you know, with the achievement of health moonshots, there's two kinds of people that come in that we bring in. Either those who are already working and thinking about the moonshot 25 years. I talked about Todd and Ed Park. They came in fully immersed in that, and those were the words out of their mouth in the first three minutes, and it was like, boom, they're a living, breathing example of a health transformer. They become a model There's some that come in. I talked about doctor.com. We just knew they had the DNA, but they had a smaller vision in terms of number of years. Once you have examples of people in the community that are able to grasp the idea of a moonshot, they're doing the explaining about how the conversations they were having changed when they started talking about a 25-year health moonshot. So they say, "Ah, I thought my fundraising, everybody needed to hear a three-year vision. I heard from Startup Health enough. They beat it down on me that I got to talk about a 25 year. So I gave it a whirl and I saw a magical difference. And so all Mm. of a sudden you hear those kinds of like breakthroughs. Yeah. And that's the other thing I'd like to talk about is your free zones. And that's the 25 years. And I would say there's nobody out there who's even thinking about how do we develop a more transformative healthcare around the world who's thinking in terms of 25 years. You know, I said, you're safe with 25 years. I mean, if you're using a 25-year vision, you don't have to worry that anyone's going to compete with you on a 25-year vision. And the reason is they don't have the mindset to see that. And the other thing is they wouldn't have the support, the community support, the coaching support. They wouldn't have the support Even if they were totally committed to doing that, they couldn't do it because they're alone. Yeah. A very recent addition to my verbiage around what I describe is I now say that we're on a mission to achieve these 11 health moonshots before 2040. I used to say 25-year vision, give that a date. I added the year 2040. Yeah. And as crazy as that sounds, like 2040 and 2020 sounded crazy 10 years ago, By the way, it's 20 years from now, right? So when you think about 2040 and 
you're now saying like, okay, let's jump to 2040 and we look back. Imagine if you had 20 years to craft the ending of cancer. Let's just use cancer as an example. What would we need to do? It's 2040. What has to have happened over those 20 years? And it's amazing when you start to think about like 20 years ago, I mean, the iPhone is like 11 years old, right? Not everybody had a cell phone in their pocket like they do now, the power of a cell phone in their Mm -hmm. pocket. 20 years ago, Google wasn't even, it was being born, right? And 25 years ago, Amazon was born. And then you're like, oh my God, the conversations we were having in 1995 about credit cards and the internet, it's safe and people didn't even understand it. And now look where we are 25 years later. Now that that's laid the groundwork, think about 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of an anchor date even, 2040, has given us an entire new conversation. And again, going back to free zone, got 20 years, there's no rush. Now, there's urgency, but there's no rush to get it done. So there is an urgency, but we've got plenty of time to get there. And I, I think it was the last episode now when I mentioned the notion of 1902 or 1903, you know, the Wright mm-hmm. brothers doing the first flight and then Amelia Earhart in the early 30s and then the moon in the late 60s. You think about those kind of jumps and that was in the first part of the 1900s in the mid 1900s. Yeah. And now we're in the 2019, what is possible? Think about why should we, not have the most ambitious, bold goal for 20 years from now in whatever it is we're working on. And that is the unlocking of freedom. Yeah, I would say the other thing is that there's an exponential factor in every 90 days between now and 2040. There will be more entrepreneurs in the network. There will be more investment coming into the network. There will be more, what I would say, community savvy about everybody who's in there. Hey, you know, all you have to do is if you need something, just put it out to the community. There's somebody out there who has already created the shortcut that will get you by that. So, you know, you're talking about an exponential growth. It's not a linear movement to 2040. It's an exponential and things are transforming. The other thing is just in the sheer world of new capabilities outside of the network that are being created in the technological world, in the political world. I mean, a lot of what prevents really good healthcare and medicine are actually political restrictions. They don't have anything to do with technological or individual capability. It's just... It's actually one of the reasons why I say sustained resilience is one of the ingredients. Mm -hmm. Very few things can sustain themselves through government administration Mm -hmm. changes. Yes. through economic downturns and bull markets. I think that when you look at sustaining your vision and your company and your collaborations for decades, not years or months or quarters, you just all of a sudden have a whole different set of decisions to make because in order to have sustained resilience, you need to have principles that you develop that continue to get tweaked. And that quarter by quarter measurement of just, that's all we got to think about is the next 90 days, yes. 25 years. I'm not thinking about three years, even though, yeah, I mean, I know yeah. generally three years, but like, I'm not overwhelmed by 25 years, nor am I limited by 90 days. Yeah. And I find, you know, people say, well, where are you going to be three years from now? And I say, well, I don't really think in terms of that. I think of the next quarter and I think 25 years. And the other thing, just adding a little to your insight on the fixed date, you know, when we started 
the Abundance 360, Peter Diamandis, I said, you know, it's 25 years and you should reflect every year that we left home on this date and we're going to get to here in a particular year. And in our case, the first year was 2013, so we're going into our seventh full year right now. And on the binder, it's 7 out of 25, 8 out of 25, 9 out of 25. And you can feel that there's a push. It's not a negative kind of like that urgency as you were talking about, there is a sense of urgency. Look, you can't be fooling around with non-essential things as you go forward. you got to really yeah. zero in on value creation. So we've talked about two free zones, the coaching free zone and the visionary free zone. And I think that there's a hidden free zone in here. It's the community free zone that you have. But I would like to talk about the mindset free zone No one else can understand or copy how you continually attract winners in all areas of your network. And it comes down to mindset. Yeah. You know, you can't unsee it, man. You can't (laughs) unsee it. It's so apparent to me that mindset matters most. You know, I think I've said on previous episodes that when I look at the companies that are failing or that have failed or failing or struggling, mindset of the entrepreneurs I mean, they can blame it on lots of things. They can blame it on the market not liking their product. They can blame it on their team, you know, not sticking around. They can blame it on funding running out or customers not renewing or lots of market conditions or things. But it is 100% mindset. And I used to say, I believe it. And now I have evidence and data to support it. So mindset matters most my mindset algorithm, which I'm now calling it, like it's a set of principles and an algorithm we could working. I absolutely get gray on it sometimes. And then every time I get burned by it. In other <laughs> words, I kind of like, well, they're not there, but they want to be there. So that's enough. And then I'm like, Damn. <laughs> or, you know, I see signs of like, you know, weakness on that and they're not getting back in zone. And I'm like, you know, they'll get there. And then they don't. And then it flips. So, I feel like in order for you to believe and use mindset as a filter, you got to almost be machine-like in applying it. And I think we had a human element. We all have that human emotional Mm -hmm. element. And I think there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence providing so much exponential opportunity for us, but we are people applying a lot of that artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. in ways. And so even if you've got the data that says they don't make it, you're like, well, but I know them until you make excuses. So mindset principles that we all have, whatever yours are, we'd like to know them. And we know we have our scorecard, scorecards really, that we apply. And when you apply them, I do believe that if you have the ambition to live in a zone with the transformational mindset, if you've got an action plan to get there, or you live there, but you get knocked down, but you know you got to get back up again, that's great. But when you're kind of not convinced you need to be there, or you keep giving excuses why you're not there, that's all you need to hear about with where you know is going to be the result of collaborating with that entrepreneur, that team is going to not end well. So we use it religiously, not only for the entrepreneurs I mentioned, we use it for investors, we use it for team members, we use it for collaborators. We're doing a lot more collaboration now than we've ever done with outside organizations and teams as we scale. And so I think around your whole community, your family, your friends, your business, your collaborations, mindset is I still hold it at the top now 
without a doubt, the most important and only thing that matters before you go to the next set of things that you might consider for filtering people in and out. Steve, we've talked about the entrepreneurial part of it, but the other half, you've got to have people who are very excited to invest actual money in the R&D lab. This is the investor-free zone, and my feeling is that you've got the most unique investment in the world right now. Uh, thank you. We, we think so, too. And our investors do as well. And uniquely intelligent, uniquely attractive, and uniquely valuable. I think you've got the most extraordinarily valuable investment in the world right now. I got to believe that it can be learned from, but it cannot be copied, and it cannot be competed with. Well, you know, it's interesting, Dan. This is going to sound crazy, but we're buyers there, too, yes. not sellers. So, I'm not selling an opportunity to invest in startup health to investors. I am out there looking for the kinds of investors that we believe will be not only additive to what we're doing, but the companies that we're investing in. So when you put a filter, a mindset scorecard filter, nevertheless, on the right investors to have in startup health, we're out there meeting with people showing them our criteria. Like, this is what we're looking for. If you meet the criteria, this is great, and it's going to go great, and we can keep going. But if you're not, either we made the wrong call even having the meeting because you're not. But if we didn't know that, we get in the meeting, we realize you don't fit the filter, we're out. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very different feeling, definitely, than not only most entrepreneurs have, but a lot of people approach this, which is, hey, all money's green, and I just got to get money in and raise money. Absolutely not. We choose who is going to invest in startup health by the criteria. And hopefully it's a mutual feeling where we both are excited about the collaboration of working together. So we approach investors in the same way we approach entrepreneurs is looking for collaborators and those that have the collaborative capabilities. And there's a lot of money out there. There's more money than has ever been out there before to invest in startups and healthcare and all the different things that are out there. But what there aren't in abundance of is investors with the right mindset that are going to be long-term collaborators and partners for the achievement of these moonshots. And so I think we use that lens to choose our limited partner network wisely, our broader investor network. We really work to pre-filter them and for mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs in Startup Health to give this guidance to them as well, which is mm -hmm. you should be trying to find that. Not everybody obviously can be as choosy with their buying the capital, so to speak, and you know, buying the investors, but you sure can aspire to it and hopefully get there quickly if you're working on the right moonshot. So yeah, it is a free zone as well. Yeah. And then the free zone, of course, which every entrepreneur wants to know, well, you know, where's the money in this? And it's really, really interesting that this is the first time we've actually talked about it and we're in the last minutes of the second episode. And every other kind of talking about entrepreneurs, usually it's the first thing, well, where's the business model in this? How's the money actually made? So my statement here is that no one else can understand how your overall base company profits and how the net worth of the base company actually grows here. The reason is that it's kind of in your model, and it is in the Game Changer program, it's number eight. 
you know, you have collaboration, you have capabilities, you have content, you have credibility, you have connections, you have community, you have confidence. And guess what? After that, there's kind of a lot of money that starts flowing. And it seems to me, whether you're following our Game Changer checklist or not, you've actually gone through the entire eight-step thing that, guess what? There's a lot of money and it's good money and it's collaborative money and it's money you feel proud of at the end of the day. Yeah. Our business model, I think, is often overlooked and for good reason. Like you said, it's not the lead thing, but we are investors in the companies in Startup Health in all of these different countries on all of these different moonshots so that we have aligned incentives with the success and failure of the company. And that gives the entrepreneurs great confidence that we are aligned with their success and failure. They can't pay to be in startup health or stay in startup health. We got to work on achieving the creation of value and equity value in their company. So we're all aligned there. Our investors that invest in us and invest in our funds, we're aligned there as well because we get paid the same way they get paid, which is success of their investments. And so we're aligned there and they know we're going to work to help make our entrepreneurs successful and connecting them into this global community of other entrepreneurs. So they have a global peer network, connecting them in with the other investors, connecting them in with the people that have vested interest. And then really our media platform, which we haven't talked much about over the last two episodes, our magazine, our newsletters, our podcasts, our reports, our live event, the big festival we do every year, putting them on a pedestal and telling their story quarter after quarter, year after year, and the progress they're making puts our business model completely aligned with the success long-term of the companies. And so you don't have to wonder, well, if I keep paying Startup Health a fee or can I pay you to be a member? You can't. You cannot pay us to be in Startup Health. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really simple. We're buyers, not sellers. And it's an important piece of our free zone and an important piece of our strategy. And uh, I don't think the payoff, by the way, will be as evident until like maybe, you know, a period of time somewhere down the road that you're like, holy crap, who were the investors in that company (laughs) from day one that were there when they didn't have or believe or have all the pieces put together? And it's Mm going to be because we were lurking in the Mm -hmm. background, just helping backstage and being a very meaningful contributor to their success. But I think it's going to be a long-term visible thing. I think it's funny. There's a lot of articles these days about the investors in Uber and who were those brilliant people who invested in Uber in 2010. They were just the people who were around listening to the first iterations of the vision and there, and they look like geniuses in 2019. They did not look like geniuses in 2010. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Last thing to wrap up on this, Steve, we started the Game Changer program in April of 2018. What is your understanding, you know, from everything that you've done over the last eight years, what you've done really from the beginning back in the 1990s, and what is your sense about what has been achieved just over the past year about what Game Changer really means to you? If you had to say three things that you now understand what a Game Changer is that has been learned within the framework of the recent past, what would you say it is? I would say that not in this order, but definitely something top of mind for me today in these days is my tolerance for inefficiency has gone to zero. Like inefficient things just get erased from my day, have gotten erased from my 
calendar have gotten erased from my accepting any inefficiency in things because when I think about my time and I think about my team's time and I think about my time with anybody we're spending time with, I often think about that example of filling up the jar with the big rocks and the pebbles and how you fill it up with pebbles, there's no room for the big thing. And if you start with that big rock, the pebbles kind of fit in. You know, I think of now game changing as there's a gigantic rock in my jar and there is almost no room for pebbles. And the pebbles can fit in a little bit, but that means that my time traveling has been completely eliminated almost around anything not completely focused on game changing. And by the way, things like Zoom calls and collaboration on Slack have allowed for that capability, right? So my tolerance for anything that's not game changing has gone almost to zero. So that's one big change in the last 18 months or 15 months since being a game changer. My second one is my confidence level in game changing and being a game changer. I think it started in the first workshop where you had me get up and tell my story. I didn't think it was that unique. In other words, I didn't think it was as special as it was until I started getting the questions back from people intrigued by and interested in. So that was like the second one was just my confidence in it has grown immensely over the past 15 months. So both tolerance and that and confidence. And then I think my third one would be connected to the idea of the importance of sustained resilience. I had mindset covered prior to this, but this sustained resilience thing really has struck a chord for me, which is, I think, inherent in what I do, but now I use those words very much on a regular basis, which is, if you just look back on people's lives and talk to them about their business experiences or professional experiences, their personal experiences, their relationships, you can learn a lot about their ability to have sustained resilience. Whether they're 25, 50, or 75, they have illustrated over their life experiences everything you need to know and the importance of being a game changer requires sustained resilience. And I think my appreciation for that, that ingredient has only grown and moved to the front front of the line. And I got to give a fourth in here, Dan, which is this collaborative capability piece, man. I see such a difference in people who want to do it alone and think they have to do everything alone versus those willing to and really interested and excited about collaborating. Yeah. I just want to finish off because the kickoff of the two episodes was Startup Health as the only global entrepreneurial R&D lab in the world. As you know, I'm a history buff. And probably the two greatest labs in the last 200 years were Edison's at Menlo Park, New Jersey. And, you know, Edison is famous for a lot of things, but the one that probably had the greatest impact on the future of the electrical world was the fact that he created the first organized, systematic R&D lab that pumped out patents, pumped out new devices, technologies, and it became the model for every other industry and every other corporation in the world. And it was very systematic, and all of a sudden it just swept worldwide that R&D could be organized as a systematic structure. And the other one was Bell Labs, which was probably the greatest impact on the world, probably starting in the 1920s. So many breakthroughs came out of Bell Labs 
over the years. But I truly believe, and you know, we'll check as we go along here, that because of the vision you have and the particular topic that you've focused your vision on and how you're going about it with collaborative capabilities and you have to be dedicated from a mindset standpoint, you are creating the greatest R&D lab in the history of the world. Love it. Thank you. I agree, but I love hearing it come from your mouth. (laughs) Thanks a lot. We'll check back in, but we're going to get these two episodes out to everybody in your community, and we'll get it out to everybody in our community. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thank you, Dan. Take care.